Welcome to a new episode of Against the Fed. I am your host, Victor E. Cooper. The more I study and contemplate on the matter at hand, in particular, our debt-based financial infrastructure, I began to discover some things that I had not considered before. And one thing that I am currently becoming aware of is that um, businesses, all businesses, are sustained by debt. I never really had given that any thought. It is not net profits that sustain the business. And as I as I become aware of this, it's uh, it's it's bothersome and it's re- and it reveals something about the nature of business and how we are being bullied to an extent. Now, I knew we were being bullied, but the depth of it, the depth of it, D-E-P-T-H, the uh, Federal Reserve banking system, uh, has the authority has the monopoly control to issue to the American citizenry currency and credit at a price that they create out of thin air but no business can sustain itself on profits so you it's like it's as if you got to be an insider, or you got to be in with the click just to get a business loan. You see what I'm saying? Just to get the business loan. This system is based, is clearly based on partisan politics and favoritism and bigotry, and, and it's, it's a type of a, a part, apartheid financial system. more to discuss Think about it. 
those of us that work, we have to rely on boss, right, to borrow money to sustain itself. Because net profits does not sustain any business. And the reason why I know this is because the money supply contracts by default. It shrinks. Every time the government or an entrepreneur, and I'm talking big wigs here, the, you know, the big corporations that you work for, when they pay off their debt obligation to the central bank, the money supply shrinks or contracts by that amount on a weekly, monthly, bi-yearly or yearly basis. And as the money supply contracts, it's of a necessity that the entrepreneur, namely, borrow money con continually. Borrow money continually. And we that work for these big corporations or even smaller size corporation or any business at large, we have to rely on their borrowings. We have to rely on them borrowing money. Just imagine living in a house when your mother or your father has to continue to borrow money to give you an allowance. That's debt slavery. Even the corporations themselves are debts enslaved by debt. Enslaved by it. It's now, you know, it sounds odd, possibly, but it's a reality. But how can you lose when you have the Midas touch? Everything you touch turns to greenbacks, right? You just print your way out of a situation. That's all. When push comes to shove, you just print your way out of a situation. And you can care less if the whole economy collapses because you got all the tangibles. More to discuss. If you think I'm talking out of the side of my neck, I got some some evidence to support my claim. And it's concerning the leading bank 
J.P. Morgan Chase. If you're not doing this well as J.P. Morgan Chase, you're not doing this well as J.P. Morgan Chase. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm. You may hear paper rattling. I wrote my notes in now. Okay. Here are my notes. And I had got this data by uh, uh, using uh, macrotrends.com. Now I'm looking for my glass. Okay. Macrotrends.com. Very nice website. If you're an investor, on average, this is what I had written. On average, within 13 years, ranging from year 2009 to year 2021, J.P. Morgan chases operating expenses in total, completely, complete expenses, tax included, accounted for 80% of revenues. 80% of their revenues were expenses with a high percentage of 92%. 92% of their revenues. That was during the year 2009 and a low of 63% during the year 2021 last year. The highest revenues and expenses occurred during the year 2019 totaling $142.5 billion and $107.9 billion, respectively. $142.5 billion in revenues and $107.9 billion in expenses. Expenses accounted for 76% of net income. The lowest revenues and expenses occurred during the year 2015, totally 101 point, 101 billion dollars and 78.3 billion dollars respectively, meaning that 101 billion dollars were revenues. Expenses accounted for 78 percent. Of net income. This data suggests that to maintain operations, yearly loans are a necessity. Also, I should have mentioned this first moment. It's too late to change now. Also, J.P. Morgan's average operating ratio is 76.8% of gross profit. Now to uh, calculate 
operating ratio, you uh, you use your operating expense figure plus uh, cost of goods sold and divide it by either gross profit or net sales, according to some formulas net sales is used. So this 76.8% represents the operating expenses that was used of of gross profit. Uh, That was within a uh, 10-year range from year 2012 to year 2021. More to discuss. Bear with me. To demonstrate how this miracle of modern banking came about, consider this simple story, The Goldsmith's Tale. Once upon various times, pretty much anything was used as money. It just had to be portable, and enough people had to have faith that it could later be exchanged for things of real value, like food, clothing, and shelter. Shells, cocoa beans, pretty stones, even feathers have been used as money. Gold and silver were attractive, soft, and easy to work with, so some cultures became expert with these metals. Goldsmiths made trade much easier by casting coins, standardized units of these metals whose weight and purity was certified. To protect his gold, the goldsmith needed a vault, and soon his fellow townsmen were knocking on his door, wanting to rent space to safeguard their own coins and valuables. Before long, the goldsmith was renting every shelf in the vault and earning a small income from his vault rental business. Years went by and the goldsmith made an astute observation. Depositors rarely came in to remove their actual physical gold and they never all came in at once. That was because the claim checks the goldsmith had written as receipts for the gold were being traded in the marketplace as if they were the gold itself. This paper money was far more convenient than heavy coins, and amounts could simply be written instead of laboriously counted one by one for each transaction. Meanwhile, the goldsmith had another business. He lent out his gold, charging interest. While his convenient claim check money came into acceptance, borrowers began asking for their loans in the form of these claim checks instead of the actual metal. As industry expanded, more and more people asked the goldsmith for loans. This gave the goldsmith an even better idea. He knew that very few of his depositors ever removed their actual gold, so the goldsmith figured he could easily get away with lending out claim checks against his depositors' gold in addition to his own. As long as the loans were repaid, his depositors would be none the wiser and no worse off. And the goldsmith, now more banker than artisan, would make a far greater profit than he could by lending only his own gold. For years, the goldsmith secretly enjoyed a good income from the interest earned on everybody else's deposits. Now a prominent lender, he grew steadily richer than his fellow townsmen, and he flaunted it. Suspicions grew that he was spending his depositors' money. His depositors got together and threatened withdrawal of their gold if the goldsmith didn't come clean about his newfound wealth. 
Contrary to what one might expect, this did not turn out to be a disaster for the goldsmith. Despite the duplicity inherent in his scheme, his idea did work. The depositors had not lost anything. Their gold was all safe in the goldsmith's vault. Well, rather than taking back their gold, the depositors demanded that the goldsmith, now their banker, cut them in by paying them a share of the interest. And that was the beginning of banking. The banker paid a low interest rate on deposits of other people's money that he then loaned out at a higher interest. The difference covered the bank's cost of operation and its profit. The logic of this system was simple, and it seemed like a reasonable way to satisfy the demand for credit. However, this is not the way banking works today. Our goldsmith banker was not content with the income remaining after sharing the interest earnings with his depositors, and the demand for credit was growing fast as Europeans spread out across the world. But his loans were limited by the amount of gold his depositors had in his vault. That's when he got an even bolder idea. Since no one but himself knew what was actually in his vaults, he could lend out claim checks on gold that wasn't even there. As long as all the claim check holders didn't come to the vault at the same time and demand real gold, how would anyone find out? This new scheme worked very well, and the banker became enormously wealthy on the interest paid on gold that did not exist. The idea that the banker would just create money out of nothing was too outrageous to believe, so for a long time the thought did not occur to people. But the power to just invent money went to the banker's head, as you can well imagine. In time, the magnitude of the banker's loans and his ostentatious wealth did trigger suspicions once again. Some borrowers started to demand real gold instead of paper representations. Rumors spread. Suddenly, several wealthy depositors showed up to remove their gold. The game was up. A sea of claim check holders flooded the street outside the closed doors of the bank. Alas, the banker did not have enough gold and silver to redeem all the paper he had put into their hands. This is called a run on the bank, and it is what every banker dreads. This phenomenon of a run on the bank ruined individual banks and not surprisingly damaged public confidence in all bankers. It would have been straightforward to outlaw the practice of creating money from nothing. But the large volumes of credit the bankers were offering had become essential to the success of European commercial expansion. So instead, the practice was legalized and regulated. Bankers agreed to abide by limits on the amount of fictional loan money that could be lent out. The limit would still be a number much larger than the actual value of gold and silver in the vault. Quite often, the ratio was nine fictional dollars to one actual dollar in gold. These regulations were enforced by surprise inspections. It was also arranged that, in the event of a run, central banks would support local banks with emergency infusions of gold. Only if there were runs on a lot of banks simultaneously would the banker's credit bubble burst and the system come crashing down. Here's more data about JP's uh, operating expenses. Now, the operating expenses are less than the total expenses. Okay, uh, 
the operating expenses does not include um, taxes. So we're just looking at really the gross profit. The average operating expense, now this is a 10, 10 year average or 10 year range, is $80.37 billion, which accounts for 76.8% of gross profit. Huh? Why, why, why is it so high? Why, why is it so high? Well, um, J.P. Morgan, uh, I found out, has a staff of 250,000 employees. Uh, their salaries are between 130 to $170,000. So I came up with a figure of $37.5 billion in salaries. So uh, that leaves us with about $43 billion more for operating expenses. When you add, you know, when you add those two figures together, you get around $80 billion. I'm just guessing here, but, you know, these people are living deliciously. <laughs> those folks are living this deliciously. Huh? They drink the finest coffee and oh man, I could just imagine their breakfasts, boy. Huh? Got them nice uh high rise, skyline, uh, office spaces. Some of them, right? You know the supervisors, they they live in large. <laughs> Driving them BMWs and you know, things of this nature. Okay, now, uh, since it is a fact that they borrow uh, yearly, probably monthly, probably bi-weekly, from the data that uh, Macro Trends release, I can't tell, but most, most definitely they borrow yearly. From about year 2011 to year 2022, J.P. Morgan received loans totaling $1.4 trillion, averaging $125 billion a year. The highest increase occurred during year 2015 of $180.95 billion. The lowest was $23.64 billion that had happened during year 2020. Now, their debt-to-equity ratio as of September the 30th, 2022 is 12.10. Now, this is bankruptcy levels. According to bankers, if you go to a banker with that kind of debt to equity ratio, they will they will laugh at you talking about you need a loan. <laughs> loan you a, 
loan you away to the to out this door of our bank. <laughs> Twelve point one. Why is it so high? I'll tell you why it's high. Because these people print up money and pay themselves with it. That's what they do. And the common folks suffer in the long run. This is where your inflation is, right? And this is just one bank. The same goes for uh, Wells Fargo and Bank of America and Citigroup and PNC. I looked at the data. It's the same pattern. Just a smaller level. Just a smaller level. Okay? 12.10. Long-term debt of $3.5 trillion. And the stockholders' equity averaging $288 billion. Huh? You see how low equity is compared to long-term debt. This is this is worse than this is like the national debt. This is like the national debt, bro. Brothers and sisters, for those that do not understand debt equity, I look at it like this. There's a couple of ways I can. Uh, Reveal it. Let's say you want to um, buy a buy 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 a uh, an uh, expensive automobile. Fifty grand. You put ten percent down. Ten percent of fifty is what? Five thousand. Five thousand grand. That's your fair share in the vehicle at the time of purchase. Or your equity in the vehicle, you owe forty-five grand. That's your debt. So the debt to equity is forty-five to five. You divide that, you get a number of nine. So for every dollar value in assets that you own, you owe nine dollars, right? Concerning this fictitious scenario so with JP Morgan's uh, I gotta stop the those excuse me I may sound muffled their debt equity ratio 12.10 mean for every dollar value of stockholders equity they uh, the corporation owes $12.10 so it came out to uh, $3 trillion Four hundred and eighty-five billion, eight hundred and seventy million dollars, long-term debt, and the equity is averaging around two hundred eighty-eight billion. Now you know that's a a, a deep offset here. That is too much debt. They they're not making any money. Yet though they are making money, you know, it's it's buy now, pay later. Okay, let's mortgage our children's future. This is what they're doing. It's just like the government does. Mortgaging away the, the uh, other people's future. Causing inflation in the long run. 
See, we're going to pay for this. The more these people print up money and pay themselves with it, the more trouble the common folk get into. Because when we go to the gas pump, then, you know, I would, it wouldn't amaze me uh, uh, in the near future that gas, gasoline will be $10 a gallon. That's because people like J.P. Morgan and Citibank and Citigroup and Bank of America, these people print up money and they pay themselves with it. That's essentially what they're doing. Expanding the money supply in the long run, we have inflation. This is what it is. Because you cannot pay back something that don't exist. That's called interest. I hope I made some sense. This concludes another episode of Against the Fed. I'm your host, Victor E. Cooper.